the mysterious vigilante is in the news again. A little more than two hours ago, in an 8th Avenue subway underpass, two men were shot. One died on the spot. The other managed to reach the street before he collapsed. He died shortly afterward in the hospital. Both had long criminal records. The vigilante himself may have been wounded. Good evening, Mr. Cursor. Or should I say, Mr. Vigilante. Welcome to Now Playing's Death Wish Retrospective Series. If a man really wants to protect what's his, he has to do it for himself. Hosted by Arnie. You're cocked, locked, and ready to rock. I'll say. Stuart. Well, he did seem a bit odd. Not only odd, the guy is crazy. It's that simple. And Jacob. I admire you. I'm a real fan. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. You believe in Jesus? Yes, sir. Well, you're going to meet him. Listener discretion is advised. No judge, no jury, no appeal, and no deals. It's showtime. Today we're discussing Death Wish, starring Charles Bronson, Vincent Gardenia, William Redfield, and Hope Lang, directed by Michael Winner. This is Arnie, your co-host of Now Playing, who has a Death Wish. <laughs> and this is Stuart. And this is the host whose heart bleeds a little for underrated movies, Jacob. And welcome back, listeners, to one of our few new retrospective series the main feed is so full of us adding on hey look there's more avengers films hey look they're putting out another annabelle hey look another freaking texas chainsaw massacre that our main feed is somewhat devoid of us getting a chance to do new movies that have six or seven installments but Bruce Willis and Eli Roth have teamed up for a movie that's finally coming off the shelf. I think they made it like a year and a half ago, but it's getting a Thanksgiving release, Death Wish. I have never seen any Death Wish film. In the past 10 years, there are many opportunities I've had, and I'm like, no, we'll eventually do a Death Wish retrospective. Eli Roth is working on it. I'm going to wait so I can be a complete newbie to the series. So I'm excited to see classics that I grew up knowing about but never seen a frame of death wish was always on tv i know i saw bits and pieces of probably all of them and so there are images burned in my mind but i don't know that i ever sat through and gave my full attention to an entire film before so this will be me as kind of a newbie at least me putting into context some of the crazy things i remember seeing in the 80s you saw bits and pieces i've heard bits and pieces of the death wish franchise back in the 90s there was a hardcore punk band that was named charles bronson out of illinois and they would use a lot of sound bites from these films either at the beginning or end of their song so as i'm watching these i'm going to be like oh no that line no that line but i have only seen the first one. I caught it on TV because I'm like, I should watch these movies. And I saw the first one and never saw any of the sequels show up on my DVR to record. I guess I should say I have heard some of Death Wish. Opie and Anthony really loved playing some of Jeff Goldblum's lines on their show. So I had heard some of Jeff Goldblum's more foul mouth lines from this original in the past. (laughs) 
<laughs> I didn't know he was in this one. That was one of the many surprises. I've seen this one, and I did not remember him being in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely some uh, cameos that are fun in this. That Vigilante films. Let's just put it out there. We've done it a couple times. Kill Bill, Machete, Hobo with a Shotgun. Punisher series. Yeah, I was wondering, is Batman a vigilante? You might throw him in. And, of course, Clockwork Orange uh, sort of twists the formula. Society gets revenge on the bad guy, but we're on the bad guy side. Every superhero is considered a masked vigilante, but when you look at this Death Wish and things, you mentioned Kill Bill, there's certainly the more hard-edged type of vigilante, and then you get, yeah, Batman. Yeah, one of the things I brought up during the Punisher series is why that might seem like a novel idea with a citizen who goes rogue and just starts shooting drug dealers. That's novel for a comic book when you have Spider-Man and Captain America's, but... Yeah, in the 70s, that is when these vigilante films came to be. Dirty Harry, Death Wish. What shocked me was how early this one came out. What, this is 1974? Yeah, it's based on a book that came out in 1972. They got it out pretty fast, and society was ready for it. Public trust and law enforcement and the White House was at an all-time low. Crime in New York City was at an all-time high. Vietnam War had failed, and Americans really wanted payback and all the soldiers came home and were mistreated not to mention the ratings changed you know what was permissible on the big screen coming from hollywood was an entirely new level of violence so you throw all of that together and yeah it really became fashionable for films to take this vigilante theme i think this is one of the first ones in which a private citizen takes matters into his own hands dirty harry is about a cop that goes above the law and you know there's a movie called walking tall about a tennessee sheriff that goes above the law these were hits french connection won an oscar and was about cops who realized you had to do bad things to get the case solved it was a sentiment of the time but i think death wish was the first time a mainstream Hollywood film said, yeah, go ahead, you, right out there, pick up a pistol and make the world better. And in fact, Sidney LeMay was supposed to direct Death Wish, ended up directing Serpico, a film I have seen, about another cop who kind of gets a little bit dirty trying to enforce the law in New York. The 70s films are gritty and a bit more dour, and this type of family gets assaulted and fights back is just a huge 70s theme that I see again and again. I was thinking about the film Straw Dogs. I was thinking about Last House on the Left. I spit on your grave if you want to go complete exploitation. I'd say Death Wish is one of the classier films of a person gets in a completely bad situation and then decides to fight for themselves. For me, the pinnacle of the genre is Straw Dogs and Taxi Driver. To me, Taxi Driver is the perfect vision of it. And that would come a few years after Death Wish. You could even say it was inspired by Death Wish. But for the most part... I don't necessarily like to watch people walk around gunning bullies down. I, it kind of feels like talk shows. It's like instead of getting a <laughs> microphone, now you have a gun, but you're still self-righteous, and I just don't like hearing it. So even when it's good actors, I've seen many of these films, and actors I respect like Michael Douglas, Samuel Jackson, Jodie Foster, they all made these kind of movies, Falling Down, Time to Kill, The Brave One. I didn't really like any of them. Yeah, I think the one that really pushed me over the edge was, it's a more recent one, Harry Brown starring Michael Caine, where he goes out and gets all those unruly youths in the UK and it just felt nasty and uh, let the law deal with I don't know if I want private citizens pulling out guns and shooting people 
people, even if they are bad people. There's got to be a better way to do this. And neither did Brian Garfield, who is the man that wrote Death Wish. It was a book from a best-selling author. This book itself wasn't a bestseller, but it came out in 1972 and got some critical acclaim. And it was written as an anti-vigilante statement. I read it. I went back to it. I'll bring it up through the show. This movie does follow it to a large extent, but emphasis is different. I feel like things play differently on screen, play out, and you feel like you're asked to cheer for things that when they appeared on the page, that wasn't how I was feeling. But originally, yeah, I think when Sidney LeMay was involved in this, when they had names like Jack Lemmon talked about as the lead, that this could have been a serious dramatic movie. But when you cast Charles Bronson, I mean, <laughs> that just takes it to a different level. I want to point out, Charles Bronson is 52 years old when they make this movie. He has already had his career. He has already had decades of hits in B-movies as Machine Gun Kelly or supporting parts in big classics like Great Escape or Magnificent Seven. Yeah, I think of him as someone that always shows up in movies I really like, like those ones Dirty Dozen. The only one that really stands out to me as being maybe a Charles Bronson movie, and even then, maybe not, is Once Upon a Time in the West, which is a great film, and he's definitely the main protagonist, but even then it doesn't seem like it's just about him saving the day. There's so many characters in that film. Is this the series where people think of as a lead for Charles Bronson because I can't think of any other movies really where it is about him as the star. It is the movie that made him a big star in America. Here's the funny thing. To Americans at this time, the most popular American actor was Robert Redford. But if you went to Japan, if you went to Europe, if you went to anywhere else, the coolest American they could think of was Charles Bronson. It had international appeal. He was the macho man that foreigners thought Americans should be. Here's what I found really funny about him is to me, he is the death wish guy. That's what I know him from because that's when I grew up. The commercials were all over TV, the posters, the billboards everywhere. When I went to look him up on IMDb, Death Wish is not in the top four films he's known for. Now, I don't know exactly <laughs> what algorithm IMDb uses for this, but it's a combination of film popularity as well as the star's role in that film. So if you were John Candy in Little Shop of Horrors, because it's just a cameo role, you're not going to be in that known for. Somehow their algorithm figures it out. They say the top four for him are Once Upon a Time in the Old West. Which I love. I'm going to highly enjoy it. It makes me want to go see it again. He plays harmonica. And yeah, he's a big part of it. Sergio Leone. If you like spaghetti westerns, you got to see that movie. Yeah, I just watched that one a few months ago and it is amazing. The Great Escape is number two. I got to get to it. He's billed, but he's not the star. The Dirty Dozen is number three. Again, he got a top billing, but not the star. Yeah, not who I think of when I think of that movie. No. And that's one of the classic films I've seen him in. I'm pretty sure I saw the original Dirty Dozen. I saw some Dirty Dozen movie on like cable TV in the 80s. It was an older film being replayed on a Sunday morning. So I think I saw it. And I think I went, hey, I think that's Charles Bronson without a mustache. And then the fourth movie they give him is Magnificent Seven. Again, the same. I, I would place these all above Death Wish, like as great films that he's been in. Sure. Without a doubt, they were more popular movies. And it was what he was known for in 1972-73 when he was cast in this film. He was known as the tough guy you put as a supporting player to your real leading men 
in American movies. But if he starred in the movie, it was usually a B picture about a spy or a cowboy or somebody doing something bloody and macho. And it just didn't make much bank or much of an impression on American audiences. It would play very, very big internationally. And again, that was a big part of how he got the part of Death Wishes. They knew that they could sell this movie. It may not play well in America. It was controversial in subject matter. And many people were afraid to make this movie, but they figured we could always sell it to Italy because Charlie Bronson's in it. Did this get an R rating? Yes. This was not an X? No, this was an R rating. Okay. And when I think of Charles Bronson, the stuff I've seen of his, I've seen, I like I said, I think I've seen Dirty Dozen, but I've definitely seen Murphy's Law. Ooh, the 80s stuff. <laughs> and I've seen Messenger of Death from 88. I mean, once we got into the late 80s, I was renting almost everything on VHS. We were still getting Death Wish in the late 80s, too. Yeah, Canon Films, what you're talking about, who was pushing him in the 80s, the stuff that we were being exposed to that was new was that Canon fodder. I'll go ahead and call it that. They're a really <laughs> interesting company, and I imagine in the weeks ahead, we will be diving more and more into their repertoire. But Canon Films, boy, they churned out some really terrible movies, and Charles Bronson always seemed to be on the poster for some of them. But that's too bad. I mean, he does make good movies, and I'm going to make a point. I don't know how many in this series I'm going to like. I think I knew today's one was special because it was based on a book, and I predict it's going to be the most dramatic of this entire series. But I don't know. I know where this series is headed. There could be some brown arrows coming. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to recommend <laughs> with the fervor of these being great movies you need to see once we get to the sequels. But I am going to try to go back and watch some of the movies he is loved for. So maybe I can bring him up on the show so I have something positive to say as we get further into the Death Wish franchise. I must say, too, I don't know much about this new movie that Bruce Willis is going to take over for Charles Bronson. Well, I guess he is also a action star who seems past his prime that could get a real resurgence in the box office if it works. It seems to make sense. He, he is kind of the Charles Bronson of the millennium. I don't know. Charles Bronson seems to have more charisma than Bruce has these days. <laughs> That's saying a lot. It is. <laughs> who smiles less? That's a difficult <laughs> contest to, to figure out there. Bruce Willis. I mean, mm. Charles Bronson's all smiles in this film. He's got a big smile at the end of this one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one. Okay, a big smile once. Well, his family and daughter, horrible things happen to him. I, I get why he's not. And in Hawaii, there's smiles. The guy is known, and, and on the set even, he's a no-nonsense guy. I mean, you can, he wears it. He is exactly how he presents himself in the movies. Doesn't have a lot to say. Hates to give interviews. Does not get introspective. Is not pretentious about his craft. Shows up, does his work, puts in a hard day's work, and that's it. What you see is what you get. And uh, many people said that they liked working with him because he was professional but they didn't really get to know him, that he's kind of a cold individual. And I, I don't see a lot of warmth and smiles. And if that's Bruce's problem right now, maybe he can use that to his advantage. It seems like it's going to be a very different take. I'm guessing it's going to have a bit more closure than the film we're going to talk about today, <laughs> a wild guess. Eli Roth is it, probably going to have a lot more gore. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure the body count and the blood spatter will be much higher than this. Again, this movie's full of surprises, and one may be that it isn't the Death Wish blood sport that you might anticipate. I'm looking forward to the remake, though, because of the cast. I mean, we're going to talk about it when we get there. 
We're recording this hoping it's actually going to stick to its release date, but honestly, if I were a betting man, I wouldn't put a dollar on this. Why wouldn't you put out a bloody movie at Thanksgiving with Elizabeth Shue in a 2000 theaters? <laughs> That's the thing I'm saying is the cast. It's got Elizabeth Shue, an actress I like. 20 years ago. Hey, did you watch Hamlet 2? She's great in that. Uh, okay. <laughs> because he was forced to for the book. Yeah, I mean, I did. <laughs> And Vincent D'Onofrio's in it as Paul's brother. Okay, again, this this whole movie is sounding like something that should have been made 20 years ago. Mike Epps. Okay. Guess that Uncle Buck wasn't working for him. <laughs> yeah. So with those actors, I'm hopeful it's better than the stuff I've recently seen Bruce put out, like that direct-to-video vice. Yes, Bruce Willis's career has become direct-to-video action films and a cameo at the end of Split. Yeah, he's kind of making the movies that I think Charles Bronson will be making at the end of this series right now. So hopefully they can have an inverse. But why don't we go ahead and get into it? Let's get to this original Death Wish. It's not the movie I thought it would be. Arnie, give him the plot. Yes, and it's not a birthday movie either. I mean, we're between birthday movies right now. I think it's important to say that, yes, we each had birthday wishes. What Mine was last week. Yours is next week. In between our birthdays. Yes, a death wish. And Kingsman 2 on Sunday. Charles Bronson plays Paul Kiersey, an architect who lives in New York City with his wife Joanna, played by Hope Lang. Also in New York lives Paul's adult daughter Carol and her husband Jack Toby. Shortly after Paul and Joanna return from a Hawaiian vacation, some thugs, led by Jeff Goldblum, as freak number one, <laughs> break into the Kersey house. They kill Joanna and rape Carol, leaving the woman in a catatonic state. Paul is both mourning, but also angry about the rampant crime in New York City. He even arms himself with two rolls of quarters and a sock for self-defense, which he has to use shortly after when someone tries to stick him up. A work trip to Arizona ends with Paul being given a gun as a gift. Paul's father was a hunter, and though Paul is a pacifist who was even a conscientious objector during the Korean War, he's a marvelous shot. So when Paul returns to New York City, he goes out with his revolver in his pocket, practically daring thugs to accost him. One does, and Paul shoots the man dead. The next night, Paul sees three guys beating up an old man, so Paul confronts and kills the three. Paul's actions start to cause other people in New York to violently defend themselves when being robbed. The police, led by Lieutenant Frank Osha, played by Vincent Gardenia, are on a hunt for this murderous vigilante. But higher up, the DA and police chief tell OSHA they don't want the vigilante arrested. Muggings are down throughout the city, and if word got out, then every good citizen would take up arms against crime. Like, that's a bad thing? So OSHA is made to make the vigilante quietly go away. Through some detecting, OSHA does figure out Paul is the vigilante, and when Paul is shot when stopping a mugging, OSHA visits Paul in the hospital and tells him to move out of New York in exchange for OSHA burying the evidence on Paul. Paul agrees and gets himself a work transfer to Chicago, but in Union Station, Paul sees some thugs harassing a woman. Paul gets involved and makes a finger gun motion at the creeps as credits roll. So that's pretty much what I expected going in. I mean, this is a movie from the early 70s. I know we're going to be getting to some exploitation films, some canon films later on. I mean, I look back at the other 70s franchises we covered when Jacob, UI, and Brock reviewed Rambo and Rocky. The first installments of those are very different from the stereotypical later sequels. Yeah, they're usually more character pieces than action films. 
And yet there's a formula to them. We know when we're here at Hawaii that there's no hope that Joanne is going to make it to the end of this picture breathing. Just no way. Honestly, I knew so little about this film going in. Oh, come on. I'm serious. I knew that there was something that happened to his family that he got revenge on. But rape, murder, abuse, I didn't know if they died. I didn't know anything other than Charles Bronson would eventually pick up a gun and go out there. I mean, the movie's called Death Wish, and... Normally, a death wish isn't that you wish for someone else to die. A death wish, when somebody says you have a death wish, it means you're out there, you're driving crazy, you're doing things that will get you killed like you wish to die. And so I wondered, is he going to be suicidal? Is he going to be going out there trying to do things that would get him killed? I think they could have played that up with his actions. I mean, we'll see him struggling once he starts getting this revenge. He struggles with it at the beginning, but it's telling when they're on the beach here, you know, he wants to have some sex on the beach and his wife's like, we're too civilized for that. And he says, I remember when we weren't. That, that, that's telling to me is that, oh, this guy must have some kind of past. He's willing to go animal again. See, Charles Bronson is someone that I expect to see picking up a gun and laying waste to thugs. Kissing pretty girls on the beach and being an architect. This is a real stretch for him. I got to say this opening, the real surprise for me, for many reasons, including the fact that this character is changed from the book. In the book, he is an accountant. And I think that, you know, he had a lot of statistics. And so they were just bringing up statistics all the time, crime statistics. Here, I think it's more visual that he's trying to create a perfect city that's a more cinematic approach for the character. But this is not a character that I would immediately think, you know who should play? Charles Bronson. Yeah, they had to rename the character and rewrite some stuff because the director wanted Bronson in the role. They'd worked together before. So they did make some changes there. For some reason, they changed the last name. I don't know why Paul Benjamin isn't a Charles Bronson name, but Paul Kersey is. In the book, he is specifically Jewish, and they do kind of put in a lot more tension between Jewish and black citizens of New York City. It became much more of a race-baiting thing, and uh, I think maybe they just didn't want to go there. Many of the attackers are white or generic, and they don't want to make this an issue about Jews versus blacks. Yeah, we're going to get whites versus blacks, though, later on when we get to canon. But yeah, I feel like this one, when he goes back to work and he's got his buddy Sam like calling him a bleeding heart liberal, that's not what I think of when I think of Charles Bronson. I don't know what his politics were, but I think of him with a gun shooting people. Not, I don't think Bernie Sanders is doing that. The story on how they got him to sign was the director pitched him the storyline and he said, I'd really like to do that. And he said, oh, good. He was like, no, I'd really like to go out and shoot muggers. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't say I was going to do your movie. That took a little bit more. He got a half a million dollars. That was his fee, which at that time, very high. Highest paid actor in Hollywood, probably. But part of the thing that bugs me is they're really selling him in clumsy dialogue at the beginning that he is this blue dog democrat you know what line you mentioned jacob about we're too civilized i remember when we weren't that i think you know he's talking about when he used to be younger and would have sex on a beach and then somebody has just this really awkward conversation where he says my heart bleeds for the underprivileged and he's talking to somebody else who's like stick him in concentration camps i'm like could this dialogue (laughs) be more stilted and 
just obvious that you're trying to sell him as something that the actor's performance is not giving me, but you're trying to tell me through ham-fisted dialogue. And it's going to stay that way later on when he goes to Arizona and it becomes a whole Second Amendment debate. I was not expecting that in a Death Wish movie for, look, it, it's a dude shooting bad guys, muggers, the weird politics that they bring up. They're just so broad. It's almost funny watching it today. That's almost entirely the book. You could not make a faithful adaptation of that book. It's very short, and most of the time is spent inside the head of the main character. It's not told in first person, but every scene has him in it. There are no scenes without him, and everything is about him having an internal dialogue and sometimes having conversations with the people around him about what is the proper response to violence. And so it is a philosophical notion. They're right to work some of that in here. I think if Jack Lemmon, the original choice for this part, were in this, this would feel more naturalistic. You believe that there's somewhere for Jack Lemmon to go, that he would start as a bleeding liberal and would have a real debate with himself about picking up the gun. But come on, Arnie, you said you didn't know. Jacob, you had to know that Joanne at home was not going to last much longer. Oh, I knew, but I saw this on TV originally. I didn't know it was going to be so graphic. I did not remember that because it was edited for TV. I couldn't believe how shocking the scene is. Yeah, I watched this with Marjorie, and I was thinking it was something we were going to discover together. And as we're sitting down, she's like, yeah, I've seen this movie a bunch. And then we get to the home invasion scene and she's like, I don't remember any of this. It turned out she was watching it on KPLR, the St. Louis cable station where all of this was edited out. So when we get to see Jeff Goldblum looking very Jeff Goldblum-ish. He's very Jughead with that crown he's wearing. Yeah, that hat takes it to a new level. I guess you wouldn't normally think of him as playing a thug. He doesn't get that role too often, but he is very tall, and that must be what the casting director was thinking. Yeah, he's big. He's also got a really creepy grin, too, you know? I mean, we saw him play bad in The Fly, and he's played heavies in some other roles. I think there was a gangland drama. Was he bad in Deep Cover? Oh, God, I had... He even uses the expression Mac Daddy. I have completely repressed that, but you're right. <laughs> he did try to go back to his Death Witch days about 20 years later to maybe not the greatest effect. But again, I think of Jeff Goldblum, classic nerd, and those are the parts he really excels at. Here, he and a big bald guy and a guy that likes to vandalize. They're robbing the store. They're well, I guess they're paying for the spray paint and for the slits, but they've been eating junk food and casing the aisles of this grocery store, just looking for anyone that they can rob. And of course, they decide once they see prim and proper Joanne and her adult daughter shopping, who are completely oblivious to them. It's amazing that they're like tearing down the aisles and these women have no idea that these punks are a couple feet away from them. <laughs> but yeah, following them home and, and breaking into the apartment and having their way. But don't you think that's a political statement that they are so in their rich, comfortable lifestyle that they don't even see the poor people around them even when they're uproarious? Yeah, it could be. I don't even know if it's about them being rich. It could be they're bleeding heart liberals too and they just don't think this kind of stuff is rampant or a danger and so they feel comfortable. Did I miss something? Do they set up Carol? Like all of a sudden, Hope, the wife, is with this other woman that looks younger but I wasn't sure who she was until much later when the call is made to Paul about what happened. Yeah, it's not set up and in the book, we don't even see this attack. I think it's 
could be labeled very exploitative that we even have to see the violence that was bestowed upon these women because that's not the point. It's not what was done to them. It's the fact that what is Paul going to do about it once he learns? And this scene, all I could think of was singing in the rain, right? The wide angle lens, the tacky 70s decor, this is Clockwork Orange ripoff all over. Except the thing is, with Clockwork Orange, it's a horrendous rape scene, but there's a weird charm with the way Malcolm McDowell is singing. Here, it is very visceral. Like, it, it is a repulsive scene. That I want, I'm not even going to talk about what they're doing to Carol when Hope finally dies, but th- it shocked me that this only got an R rating. Yeah, it, it, they're pushing the envelope. And again, if Kubrick hadn't come out there, and it was an X-rated movie, Clockwork Orange, for several years, I think they did get, end up getting that changed down to an R at some point. But again, we were at an interesting time when they were just finding their way on what violence was acceptable. And because this was a major studio putting this out, if this was some grindhouse release, I think that, yeah, it probably would have gotten an X. But Charles Bronson in a movie made by United Artists being released by Paramount here in America, I think sometimes the MPAA can play politics and just look the other way on things that you're right. This is really much stronger than an R rating. I don't know if it's that shocking. Maybe it's because I see the envelope pushed so much more these days. It didn't feel that gory. It's not the gore. It is what is being done to Carol. It's really a sickening at a level that we'll never feel again in this movie. It is the most horrifying moment of the movie. But I feel that it needs to be horrifying if you're going to go with Paul on this journey. You need to feel what he feels. And while a book can put images in your head and convey feelings, Charles Bronson isn't a good enough actor to really sell this kind of emotional pain. And so I think by seeing this, we get on his side. I think this movie does a very good job of justifying vigilante justice when you have a world where the cops can't stop this kind of thing. I mean, it goes really broad, too. I mean, this is one guy with the spray paint. Is spray painting swastikas? I don't think of them as neo-Nazis. Yeah, but you know what? I don't need to see the Joker do this kind of thing to understand Batman if we're going with other vigilantes or just other normal citizen vigilante movies. Taxi Driver doesn't even do anything. This Like, what they do picked is really hard I think for this movie yeah and again I think that if you had gone the book's tack you're really challenging Paul's perspective on things that honestly because he wasn't there it makes him crazier he thinks about all the different ways they could have gotten into that apartment we see how they got into the apartment it's pretty cut and dry they saw the groceries they followed them home they slipped in through the back and up the stairwell and pretended to be delivering the groceries But in the book, with so many statistics, he kept thinking about all the different ways they can break into your house. And there was things I had never thought about. I guess I watch a lot more exploitation flicks than you do, Jacob, because when I think about Last House on the Left and I think about I Spit on Your Grave, what is depicted is so much grosser and more repugnant than what you see here that to me, this felt middle of the road, quite honestly. I've never seen any forced oral sex like that before in an exploitation movie. I have. And in fact, it's in Last House on the Left where the revenge is biting it off. That's one movie. And an unrated one. That's an exploitation film and not a mainstream Charles Bronson movie. Yeah, I think that is 
why it's shocking in this context. You wouldn't expect it in a Paramount picture, and you wouldn't expect the MPA to be so lenient and let this go out to... Yeah, this is a big hit. I want to stress, it made $22 million. It was a summer movie in 1974. That is considered a blockbuster by those standards. People were lined up around the block to see scenes like this. Because it's an older movie, I'm watching it at home, and again, I've seen other things since... You know, I think The Accused is worse than this. And I was surprised it was as perfunctory as it was. I don't want it to go on longer, but I was like, oh, okay. I didn't even get that what had happened by freak number one there, Jeff Goldblum, was enough to kill Joanna. I didn't think either of them were going to be dead when things were over. I didn't see him cutting her. He kind of, you know, was screaming about rich cunts and he had something in his hand, but I thought he was just beating her. I did not see a murder here. It looked like a billy club and they speed up the film to make it look like he's roughing her up more than, you know, she's really getting whacked back and forth with this stick, but because they didn't have the the proper tools to do the stunt choreography in real time, they speed it up and it kind of looks a little cartoonish. The point is, I suppose to desensitized older generations, this won't be the most vile act you've ever seen on film but at this time 1974 and hopefully any time no i think it still is pretty shocking yeah you're still upset by this and you're right arnie unfortunately charles bronson because he is so stoic because he doesn't have an incredible emotional range because you don't believe it when he cries we need to have a bruise on our eyes like this in order to go with where this movie is going because when he finds out that his wife didn't live and that his daughter is going to spend much of the rest of the movie in a catatonic state yeah make it an exploitation pick because you can't make it a believable drama and the catatonic state I feel bad for Carol and what happened to her. By the same token, I guess I just don't know if rape can make you catatonic to the point that they put you in a sanitarium full of nuns. I just don't hear a lot about that. I hear a lot about rape statistics. I don't hear a lot about sanitariums. And In the book, it worked more because her reaction was the opposite of what was going on with her father's reaction. So you would see someone that was going way too far with violence at the same time that someone was becoming catatonic and unable to do any kind of action. You were seeing two sides of the same coin. But dramatically, I feel like they do this as a way of making you feel sympathetic towards Charlie Bronson. And they're going to do that throughout the series of like, do something bad to my family member, I'll spend a little time crying about it, and then we'll get to the killing. I also think it's helpful, though, because Jack, his son-in-law, who tells him about what had happened, they go to the hospital. I do love the moment, like, there's a man in the hospital bleeding, and Paul's just like, nobody come! Like, again, I like just the, all these little signals about what this film is about, like, people suffering and no officials doing anything about it. But I feel like Carol's reaction is there to... Yeah, to give something for Paul to bounce off of. I think it's more horrifying. Like, later on, he's going to paint those walls and listen to jazz and cook some liver. Why his daughter, yeah, is going into a sanitarium with nuns. I think it's helpful to show how far gone Paul becomes throughout this movie. Let me just ask up the top. We're going to go scene by scene and get through the movie. But do you believe at any time this movie is asking you that Paul is doing the wrong thing? Do you feel like there's a time where you are not with that character or he's gone too far for you? 
I don't feel like this film ever makes us think that he's gone too far. I do appreciate that they show him struggling the first few times. He's going to get physically ill. And so I like it that it starts off like, oh, this is, maybe this isn't the thing you should do. Like, look, it actually has effects on him. He's not proud that he shot someone. But by the end, they've done away with all that. I'll mirror Jacob's answer to your question. I think that the way it's depicted here, you see what happens to his family. They could have done something really bold. And I thought they might. They could have had him kill an innocent person, a good person. They could have had him misunderstand a situation and really show the negative of him being judge, jury, and executioner of the streets, right? But because this is such a crime-ridden New York City, because he always waits for the bad guys to make a move, there's one scene where, and we'll go through this, where I thought this might not be as what it appears. He might kill people who are just going to ask directions or something. But had they gone there, I think it would have been more. I understand the film is selling it as morally ambiguous because of his reactions early on, but I have to say that while I consider myself to be more of a liberal and a little bit more on the side of gun control, when I see the city in which he lives, and I couldn't figure out the geography. I did try to figure out what part of New York he's even living in, and I couldn't place it from the landscape, but... I'd be more than willing to pick up a gun and start defending myself, too. Well, the thing is, he doesn't just defend himself. He goes out looking for it, and that's different. He may go out looking for it, but that's like he's just walking the street and carrying a lot of money. No, no, no. When he's sitting on that subway, he's waiting for someone to come mug him. That's like saying if you're wearing a short skirt, you're asking to be raped, Jacob, just because... No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when he's sitting on that subway, he's waiting for someone to come mug him. He wants to be confronted. He wants to shoot someone. But if nobody confronted him, then he wouldn't shoot them. He's not hunting, like, out for lions. He's sitting there going, here I am, I look like an easy target. Are criminals going to come after me? And I view that as a different scenario. Well, we'll get to that scene, we'll cover it, but I was just curious to know if it was even a debate for you guys. And it sounds like there were scenes where it did feel a little bit challenging, but overall, yes, this is a movie that I do think advocates that in extreme circumstances, sometimes you have to do things on your own. And that was the biggest problem the author had with what had been done to his source material. It's, it's largely faithful, quite frankly, but he just hated the fact that it so conclusively sided on the idea that Bronson is right. I thought he'd get a little pushback. You know, they do finally admit Carol into the sanitarium with nuns. I thought there'd be a religious figure. Obviously, that would be the biggest pushback is the morals of who am I to do this? What does God think of me as this messenger of death? Maybe we'll get that in a sequel. I imagine usually that's a cliche, right? Like you pal around with a priest. They're going to tell you, don't do it. But not in this film. And also not in this film. He never gets back to Goldblum. He never gets back to the people that did harm to his family. That they are just statistics in a police blotter. And that there will be no payback for this specific crime. What's so funny about that is when I watched this on TV, I had it on my DVR. And you know how DVRs could be like, it will say this movie is playing from 8 to 10, but the station doesn't actually start until 8.15, so it goes over. And that DVR cuts off. I got to the end of this film, and I thought the DVR cut off, because I'm like, wait, there's 
still the original guys he's got to go after. <laughs> yeah. And so I thought I had never seen the last 10 minutes of this film. So when I watched it this, I'm like, wow, they really don't close that gap here. He's talking to cops and they're like, it's not likely you'll find them. And I think, well, this is a movie. It's very likely we'll find them. But no, this is a movie that's going to agree. It is impossible to find out who's doing the bad. And that Paul here really is just tackling crime in general. Crime as an idea. He never does any sleuthing to try to figure out who it was. I thought when I watched this originally, that was going to be the story, is him trying to find out who the killers were so he could get revenge. And it really is the environment of New York, the seediness of it, that enabled this attack to happen that he's going after. I mean, let's keep in mind, his wife gets killed, his daughter gets raped. He does get a couple rolls of quarters and puts them in a sock. I don't think he's out hunting when he gets mugged at that time. He's might be thinking about it, but he's also thinking about protecting himself. And then somebody starts to mug him. I mean, this is Stuart and I have talked way back to Friday the 13th, part eight, that our vision of New York growing up was that the moment you stepped foot in the city, somebody was going to immediately mug you and probably try to inject you with heroin against your will. <laughs> and that's the city he's living in. We just were growing up in the eighties thinking of New York in the early seventies. And so I think he's going up as much against that mugger he hits in the face with the quarters as against the people who kill his wife. Now, when I said the Bruce Willis movie is going to close the circle, I figure the Bruce Willis movie, no modern movie would let Jeff Goldblum get away with it. I think the audience <laughs> wants to walk out of there knowing that Jeff Goldblum got what he deserved for killing the quote unquote rich cunt. But in this movie, I actually like the fact that he gets away I know we're doing four more Charles Bronson movies. I would think if I was writing a sequel to this, though, maybe Jeff Goldblum isn't going to come back because he's become a bigger actor at that point, but that you might return to that character as a chance for follow-up. Yeah, I definitely think that's the case for the sequels as well as for the reboot. Uh, jumping off another idea that you said there, New York is so important to this movie. They wanted to shoot this in L.A. To save money, the producers were like, let's just shoot it in Hollywood. And Bronson was like, yeah, I live here. It would be convenient for me. But this is a New York story. And I don't think it would work in any other city in 1974. And just as an interesting note, the World Trade Center, which shows up here, it's pretty much brand new. It's only a year or two old when they filmed this. I did not realize they were completed in the 70s. I love movies set in old seedy New York. It's why I love The Warriors. There's so many movies that take advantage of how hellish it really must have been to live there at that time. And I think it adds immeasurably to the tone and the mood of these scenes and why we can go with Paul and his need to fight back and kind of gives us a respite when he's sent away by work to go to Arizona. Yeah, Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> this is what I didn't expect. You say set in New York. I expected the movie to entirely be in New York. And they talk about sending him to this development in Arizona. He's like, no, my daughter's here. I want to be here for my daughter. I thought that's where it would stay. The one thing that I guess, it's not shocking. I expected this movie to focus a lot on Paul's transition from pacifist to aggressor. I didn't expect, though, that it would involve a trip literally to the Old West 
to a movie set in Arizona. That's what I'm saying with how blatant this movie is with its politics. It is not a subtle one. You know what? I love it, though. I'm going to say my favorite stuff is this 15 minutes that they spend in Tucson. I actually love how meta it gets with Charles Bronson, star of countless violent westerns, (laughs) standing there and watching people say bad dialogue with their obviously, you know, mouthing to voiceover and doing all the stunts that he used to and watching the audience. There's a whole bunch of tourists there who look completely unfazed by it as all these people are shot and killed. I think it's an excellent commentary on how people perceive violence when it's coming from a legitimizing source like the movies. They used to have a show like that at Universal Studios. I've been dragged to these ghost towns by my dad when we're, <laughs> I was young and we'd go on family vacations and have to watch these shows. Yeah, that it was a real trip for me seeing this again. Deadwood, South Dakota still does this kind of stuff. I was recently there and it's kind of fun and kind of embarrassing at the same time. I also really like who he's meeting with, Ames, Jane Child, that he's got this whole idea about how he doesn't want to build up like New York. What he perceives as the problem with New York is that people live too closely, that they don't understand what space is and that you want space from individual people because if you're too close, you'll kill each other. Here, we have a whole bunch of guns and we don't have crime because we're going to have housing that spreads out over the mountains. Well, there's that, but there's also the fact that everyone carries a gun. He is very (laughs) pro-gun. And if you tried to pull some of the stuff in Arizona that you tried to pull in New York, the person you're pulling it on would have a gun. I have a lot of relatives in Arizona and they all have guns, like lots of guns. Not only that, but he said something that I had to do some fact checking on. He said, you can't own a handgun in your city. I was like, what? And then I got to thinking about it. I don't know about a whole lot of shooting from private citizens in New York City. I looked it up. It's expensive. You can own it. But it's over $500 just to get the permit before you even buy the gun. This is something that Illinois recently faced because Chicago has the strictest handgun laws in the country. It also seems to have one of the highest murder rates in the country, so it's not really helping. But it was a Supreme Court federal, not state, case because Illinois was the only state that didn't allow concealed carry. So... Because I knew of that case, I know the Supreme Court said, no, you must allow concealed carry. You can charge for those permits, like you said New York does. But at any moment in Illinois, I could be carrying a gun right now, Stuart, and Mm. by law, I'm allowed (laughs) to do that if I have the right permit. And as long as it's concealed and you don't know, then I can keep my Smith & Wesson in the back of my pants. I'm going to have to think about that now that we actually record (laughs) the show (laughs) face-to-face. Start agreeing with them. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm going to take the stance that I sometimes do when my opinions diverge. But uh, yeah, I think all of this is cool happening. Another thing we're learning here in Arizona is that Paul was, yes, a Korean War veteran, but a conscientious objector. That's so cool that he has this conflict that we learn about his backstory, about someone that was raised on guns, served in our military, knows how to shoot, can hit the bullseye on the target, and yet there's this story about his father being killed on a hunting accident and his mother disapproving. Mistaken for a deer. Yeah. And that does happen. I mean, anytime you go out hunting, again, I live in Illinois. Yeah, our vice president, Dick Cheney, did that. He mistook someone for a quail. I always think that's some kind of government cover-up. And, but <laughs> I, yes, I Different do, podcast, different podcast. I do suppose that's the cover story for it. But yeah, I like that. 
Conscientious objector, I think that would be a big term in the 70s when people were against the Vietnam War. I don't know that that was as big of a term during Korea, but while I like the character building it does, I do consider it a little bit more stilted dialogue to sell us, this guy was a pacifist, this guy was a pacifist. What we're trying to do is tell you we've taken the most peaceful guy in the world and put him through hell in order to turn him out the other side. I mean, we kind of saw this... You mentioned Batman already with the killing joke, you know, where you take somebody and try to give them such a bad day that they'll come out the other side a killer. I wish that Bronson could give me more of it and it was less through dialogue and more through emotion and that instead of spending 50 minutes of this film of him looking at mail and repainting his apartment, if we could see him you know, working on a bread line or something, turning the other cheek, being religious, something that would show me his character traits instead of telling me he's such a pacifist that when he picks up a gun, I would be shocked. I don't know that Bronson can do that. I don't even know Bronson from his other works. Mm. And yet knowing him from this and just seeing the performance he's giving here, I'm not seeing a range like I saw from Stallone in both Rocky and First Blood where he could take me on a journey here. Bronson, I do start getting the doldrums of like, I know you're picking up a gun. Just let's get picking up the gun because then I might be a little surprised where things are going. I'm just taking it easy on him because it's a 50-year-old Bronson who this is how he is. I'm not expecting him to do anything worthy of an Academy Award. I'm just liking what they're trying to get him to do at least with these conversations with Ames when he comes back to New York and he paints those spray-painted walls and is listening to that jazz. That's what I don't think is legal, is for Ames to give him a gun. He has no permit. It was the 70s, yeah. Just stick a gun in your suitcase and put it on a plane. (laughs) You can get anything through TSA if you just make it look like a birthday present. I know. He's checking a gun. Do you know what would happen (laughs) if I checked a gun? I mean, you're allowed to check a gun, but you must tell them that you have the gun. I don't think you can do ammo, though. No, you could pack ammo too. TSA, just got to let them know. But I'm sorry. I'm just like, that guy's going to get tackled and get the extra special pat down for having a undisclosed weapon in his luggage. They have x-rays, right? I mean, there's no way of getting through this. Even in 1974, they would know. But it's the conceit of this movie that the experience he has in Arizona, which is also successful job-wise. I don't know how much that ends up paying out in this story, but he's an architect that's trying to, again, think in terms of more space and working in an area that isn't like New York where they build up and people live side by side and you can hear someone using the toilet through your paper within walls. He's successfully designed a structure that Arizona and New York are going to sign off on. Career-wise, he seems to be getting over his trauma, and yet at the same time, now he has this weapon, and does he act on those impulses when he looks out his window at night and sees muggers and vandals? And there's no question what that present is, right? Like, we all knew it was a gun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we know exactly, and it takes a while. I mean, it's worth pointing out His first time walking out there and killing someone is at the halfway point of this movie. They spend a whole lot of time debating whether he should do that. For an exploitation movie, for a B-movie, which I still think that this is, that's surprising. That is a lot of introspection for a movie that I presume to be about bloodlust. 
And I could go with the slower pace if I was being sold something either through Bronson's performance or through things that I didn't feel are caricatures. But when I see the daughter going to the sanitarium and that milquetoast son-in-law who calls him dad and all of that, just completely ineffective, and Bronson giving pretty much flat face looks where he's almost like I have to project emotion onto him because he's not radiating it back at this point he does a little bit later we're very close to where i think he actually gives a really good performance but during these scenes i mean i laughed when he's swinging that sock above his head in his apartment like it's a bolo that was a funny scene but beyond that i'm not having a reaction oh i thought that was a really good scene showing him from going sick to becoming more empowered to where he like smashes it It is a great acting no but i liked what that scene told me i mean this is my movie star versus actor debate some people are great actors and they're going to take you through that journey and you're going to see and nuance how they work through these emotional internal problems and then you just have movie stars people that the audiences have said we like what you do you represent something you're an icon and charles bronson is an icon of masculinity he exudes toughness and virility and being able to take law into his own hands and so by casting him here he's giving the charles bronson performance it's not that it's a bad performance it's his performance it's what he does you have to either accept it or not and by putting him in this role yes you've diminished what this project could have been it's not going to be the dramatic oscar-winning movie that scorsese could have made but i do think on its own b-level terms i'm accepting what's happening here it's a b-movie so it's not aces but it works in its own context for a b-movie it feels elevated that they are going to have some reflecting going on again bronson comes back he gets that gun someone tries to mug him and he turns around and shoots him he goes to his apartment he's getting sick he's like throwing up in the toilet i wouldn't expect that in a normal revenge flick b movie so the fact that they're even attempting that it elevates this corny concept to me a, a bit i agree with you there that's the scene i really like is when his hand is shaking i mean I've been in scenarios where that adrenaline gets flowing and you shake. You're not shaking because you're afraid. You're shaking because that adrenaline is in your system and you can't control the reaction of your body. And that, I think, Bronson sells marvelously. I just wish during some of the slower, more introspective portions of the movie, he could have given me an equal performance. It's when the action starts. And yes, he goes out and he waits for somebody to mug him and then he shoots and kills the person and then runs away because he did just commit murder. He thus is, by definition of law, uh, mugging could have been perhaps a misdemeanor, and he committed a felony that is life in prison or something because it is mostly premeditated murder he's doing here. This is where he's really selling me that he's not out there a crazed killer enjoying his vengeance. He is an everyman who has decided to stand up for himself. And this is actually where we meet the inspector that is going to pursue this vigilante, that this story is going to blow up in the media and the New York PD is actually going to feel a lot of pressure to find Paul and stop him from making these killings. It was the original concept in the early stages of the screenwriting that this would be the main character. 
that Henry Fonda was going to play this character, and this is who we would follow. It would be like Dirty Harry, and at the end of it, you'd get the vigilante, and I think the plan was that he would die, but then it would look like maybe, because of the ironies of the way it ended, the cop would end up becoming the vigilante and continuing the night stalking of muggers and vandals and what have you. Obviously, a very different movie. Would that be more satisfying to watch this actor trying to find Charles Bronson than watching Charles Bronson try to quench his bloodlust? I don't know if I'd want to watch this actor, maybe Henry Fonda, (laughs) like you said. But I do think it takes an interesting turn here where it becomes about the cops trying to stop a single vigilante, even though it is rampant crime in New York City, they see something more dangerous in a normal citizen taking the law into their own hands. This could have just been Charles Bronson shooting people for the next 45 minutes, and we'll get there with those canon films. But no, they're going to try to do something more interesting here. Yeah, and I like him. I mean, I like them both in, in different ways. This guy feels like he's from any cop movie ever. I mean, it's just, you know, one minute he's like sucking on a an aspirator for his asthma and then he's putting a cigar in his mouth and he's always sneezing i'm like i don't know if the original taking a pelham one two three was out yet but i just kept thinking about if you've seen that film you know sneezing plays a big part in it i wondered if that was something the actor himself brought to the role that doesn't seem like something that you would write in the script but that this actor is so anti-Charles Bronson. The fact that Charles Bronson's the one out there picking up the gun and shooting people, and you've got this nerdy guy who... I know this guy, he was on L.A. Law for a lot of episodes, and he was the boss of Rick Moranis in Little Shop of Horrors. And so when I think of this guy, I just think of him as this impotent person who... You know, he's constantly got allergies. Who has allergies in New York? I have terrible allergies. I get to New York, I'm clear. There's no plants in New York to be allergic to. So I just think that might be some characterization he brought to the role. This is a hysterical cop to me, though. He is so intuitive in how to do his investigation. If every cop was like this in New York, there wouldn't be the crime in New York they have. And I think that is the irony of this film. You know, I think about modern day politics. You could have the boring and safe choice. She did not win. Or you could have the rogue one. And do you try to stop this rogue vigilante going out? That is almost seems more dangerous than just having your run of the mill muggers going around that we're at least used to. And if you look in the background, Frank is, you know, obviously spending a lot of his time talking to other cops about what they should be doing, how to triangulate, how to hone in on who's doing this vigilante stuff. Future Oscar winner Olympia Dukakis is one of the women that is uh, figuring out where crimes have happened around the grocery store. I noticed her name. I noticed a couple of names in the opening credits that kind of got my attention. I noticed Hope Lang, who I didn't know was in it. I noticed Christopher Guest, and I did stop and look it up to see if it is the Christopher Guest spinal tap. It is the Christopher Guest. Come on, what about Washington from Welcome Back, Carter? I don't know his real name. Neither do I. I just recognize the (laughs) face. (laughs) But I noticed Olympia Dukakis in the opening credits, and I knew her from a lot of movies in the late 80s and early 90s. Moonstruck, obviously, being the breakout one, the one that got her the gold statue. These are done in parallel, but truly why the audience is here, why this is a big hit, is because, yes, this rest of this movie is about Branson. I don't know if it's a death wish, but it's a compulsion. 
He can't stop himself from going out again and again and getting justice. He's not going to get the people that did the harm to his wife. He's going to do the next best thing. He's going to make sure that nobody ever does that to anybody else without thinking that they could be attacked by a vigilante. And one thing I think this reboot is going to have trouble with is there's cameras everywhere in New York. How is he going to operate? In this one, they just paint it that like there's a rogue patrolman who's running behind Bronson at any given moment trying to catch up. But here, they would be able to ID in the modern era when he gets on the subway, when he's in these alleys. There's no place you can hide. I did write in my notes, must be nice not to have cameras everywhere, and then realized I was writing that about a murderer. Must be nice that you can get away with your murder. (laughs) (laughs) And they have eyewitnesses that, you know, one of the next crimes that Bronson gets involved with is a man's being beaten up in an alley, and he lives, he's just not going to tell the cops. I don't know if he's tall, short, white, black, fat, skinny. I'm telling you nothing. There was blood in my eyes, and I want vigilantes like this out on the street. I did like that moment. Like, no snitching. This guy saved my life. I'm not going to give him up. And I think it's hilarious that, yeah, Paul's going to inspire other citizens to start protecting. Again, protecting yourself. I'm cool with. Use your hat pin like this old lady (laughs) does to protect yourself. Don't try to entrap muggers, though. She would be all over YouTube (laughs) with, you know, like, that's ain't got time for that. I mean, she's great. Yes. But then there's the construction workers who take it a little too far far you know we're all cheering the lady with the hat pin but when this guy tries to steal some construction equipment and like a bunch of teamsters chase him down and then start kicking the shit out of him all of a sudden it becomes a little bit less fun but man again i just don't feel bad for any of the muggers here because they're all extremely violent we've been introduced to the scenario through the rape and death of his wife and daughter and when he's out there he never antagonizes he may be out there saying i look like a weak suspect but he never walks up to them and says hey punk or and he he does walk towards the three guys beating up the old man so he stops a beating to protect an old man but everything he does here to me is pretty defensible and if you look at florida this is probably all legal and with the stand your ground law <laughs> yeah that not a great example to justify <laughs> what he's doing here i mean that is the problem is this film's not going to challenge the notion that he's doing anything wrong he's obviously killing bad guys i don't ever question that in a more challenging vigilante movie though where do you draw the line if someone's wearing shoes you don't like you're going to shoot them where is that line and i agree this movie isn't going to challenge that but yeah how will bruce willis deal with trayvon martin i agree it will be a challenge for the new movie to be more sophisticated than what this movie is but i just kind of like the way bronson plays it that he just he acts surprised like when they get him on the subway he's like what huh and the gun's in his pocket he like he doesn't even pull it out he just like shoots through the coat to take out these guys He is a hell of a shot. I thought that was pretty strange when he did hit that bullseye, and they did give some exposition as to why, but having shot a handgun... Yes, shooting from the hip is not easy. No, shooting from the hip is really, really difficult, and if you try it with a rifle, it 
also can really twist your wrist. I, I don't suggest trying the Arnold move unless you're Arnold. But you need this for his character. If I went out there and I decided I was going to stand my ground if somebody tried to rob me, it's probably going to end up with me being killed. You know, that's what the statistic they always yeah. say about handguns in the house is, is they're more often used against the person who owns the gun than they are against the person who does the home invasion. And so that he is such a crack shot that through his coat, I feel bad for the coat. I mean, I figured that's how the cops will catch him is, hey, there's a guy with eight bullet holes in his coat pocket. He's the one. No, it's that he leaves his groceries behind. And I'm like, wow, so was he really grocery shopping? Because again, <laughs> my reading is he's just sitting on that subway waiting for someone to mess with him so he could shoot him. But police are able to go back and look at the receipt and figure out what grocery store. Oh, that's the same one that this lady got her groceries from that was murdered. So must be Paul. Well, they say that the receipt was found five miles away from the store. So he really did go grocery shopping in order to look like a mark. But then he went five miles away, you know, probably just riding subway after subway until somebody <laughs> finally decided to mug him. He's not just riding the subway. He is not going to get off that subway until someone is dead. I mean, I think that he would ride all night until he got what he wanted. But fortunately, he lives in 1970s New York, where crime statistics say, if you ride on the train all night, you're going to get it. I know. I just, I find it hard to blame him for riding a subway. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I get what you're saying. That That's the point. People should be allowed to do the kinds of things he's doing. And so we should all be cheering when people that don't like that get put down. I'm not with the cops. I mean, I do love the conversation when the police chief comes in and I recognize this voice. I had to look him up, but I'm like, I know the voice of this police chief. He is also the police chief in Beverly Hills Cop. Is this the man who wrecked the buffet at the Hero Club this morning? <laughs> but I like the fact that this guy's actions has had a positive effect on all of New York City. Crime is down because criminals are afraid. You know, there's the big question. I know we're reviewing a movie and we try to stand up politics, but there's the question. Is prison punishment or rehabilitation? Is the punishment enough of a deterrent to not do the crime? Guess what? When you have a guy out there and if you mug him, he kills you, that is enough of a deterrent in this movie to reduce crime significantly. So now they can't arrest him. They can't kill him because they'll make a martyr out of him. And then everybody's going to start being a copycat vigilante. So they just want him to go away. Yeah, I think that's the point to stress. There's lots of texts that you could have about the ethics of this. And this movie, frankly, just isn't smart enough to go down any of those roles. They do try to bring some of the sociopolitical aspects up a little bit. Like there's a woman like, oh, they're, he's killing too many black muggers. And, no, it's proportional. Oh, I think that was a joke, though, it about was. racial equality of muggers, you know, because he's killing too many blacks, but more muggers are black. No, but that is an argument people have to reincarcerate too many black people. Well, it's proportional to those breaking the law. So, yeah, like there are people who make those serious arguments. There's a lot more of that in the book. And I think that that's the strength of the book is that it looks at those statistics. Again, he was a CPA. And so he's going over all of those facts and figures to try and find the right answer here. There's lots of reasons why this may be a good or bad idea that you could make. 
But ultimately, the point is you don't want to live in a city where everyone's running around shooting each other. And that's the point. We cannot have a New York where there's no distinction between policemen and citizens. So for that reason, they're not going to catch him. They're not going to kill him. They're just going to harass him. They're going to make Paul want to not to go out again by stopping him on his way home and calling him at work and saying, you look like a guy that we're looking for. And how they find him. I mean, again, this is where I say OSHA should really be investigating every mugging. He's like, all right, you know what? Let's look at people who've lost someone in the past three months. And then let's look for someone who has a military history and this, that, and the other thing. The problem is Paul doesn't work like another mugger. If he would have stole people's wallets, they would have assumed it was just another criminal. It's that he is clean. That's what gets him in trouble. And this is a pre-computer era New York, too. I mean, this is all Olympia Dukakis. I just want to say, <laughs> she's the one running around finding out all these things and narrowing it down to 14 possible suspects. And one of them lives near that grocery store. And here it is. I mean, I get it. I accept it because this is a B movie. This is not trying to be an ace movie. So, okay. So th that's it. This is the standoff. And I do like the irony that this cop can't bust his perp. He's found him, but he has to let him go. And that makes this climax kind of interesting. Does he have a warrant when he breaks into Paul's apartment and mm. finds those bloody... No, he does not. I don't think so. Yeah, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence around here. There's a lot of magazines about the vigilante. He's getting a lot of press. And that, yes, one one of his missions recently, he was down in the subway. And one of the muggers got him. That They nicked him in the shoulder. And there's a bloody cotton ball in the bathroom. And so, yes, it probably is their guy. I don't think it would stand up in a court of law. Definitely, if they broke in here without a warrant, this wouldn't be even evidence you could admit in a court of law. But this isn't about the law. This is about what's right and wrong. And what they want to send the message is, we'll let you go, but you got to stop. And what Paul says is, I think I can't. I know that I should stop. There's no good reason to go on. And I'm never going to catch my wife's killers, but I can't stop doing this. It's a death wish. That's what the title is referring to. He cannot stop the compulsion. I would love it if that was more explicit, Stuart. That is kind of my reading. I mean, he goes into his house. He knows the cops are watching him. He's going to sneak out because he keeps the gun at work. So he's going to sneak out to work. Yeah, it does seem like a compulsion that he cannot stop killing these bad guys. Yeah, I mean, if the cops are surveying your home and they've said, we think you are the guy... You stop, at the very least, because you don't want to go to jail. Or take a couple weeks off. Yeah, exactly. I mean, eventually, people forget. They move on. But maybe he likes the celebrity. Maybe he likes the fact that he's the cover of The New Yorker. For whatever reason, he risks a whole lot by sneaking out the back and going to work and getting that gun just to get some guys. Three thugs in Central Park doesn't feel worth it. Yeah, it would have been different if it was Jeff Goldblum and the other two, but it's not. Yeah, he just wants to get those random muggers. But by the same token, and I wish the movie had made this explicit, the next one could be Jeff Goldblum. He wouldn't even know Jeff Goldblum if he encountered him. Let's point that out. He yeah. never saw them. There was never a moment where the police arrested him, but they got off on a technicality or anything like that. So for all he knows, if he kills every mugger in New York, he will have eventually avenged his wife. And I think it would have elevated this movie if you would have shown some of that madness, that shown that that if it showed every person he killed, it's him imagining that's the one that got my wife, the one that got my daughter. It would have made it a stronger 
longer film if he would have gone mad with revenge. Yeah, that would have been a way to go with it. Or you could have made him there at the grocery store with his wife and maybe they all were coming back from Hawaii and he saw the attackers. He himself was also injured in that attack. I think that would be the way that we could know that he could conclusively find the killers is that he can ID them from his own experience. But yeah, he's never going to get them so that these three guys just kind of symbolically represent the three guys that went in the grocery store and one of them is packing heat this is the first guy that doesn't have a switchblade he actually gets a shot in on bronson and i think oh of course he's gonna die except we have four more movies to do he can't die (laughs) you could have him die and then oh it wasn't as bad as we thought or something (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't as bad a death he's up he's back well, if you, if he's in the morgue, you can't really come back from that. But if he just dies on the street, you could then pick up from there. We've seen, you know, I'm thinking Halloween 2 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, well, in that kind of movie. But I actually thought they were killing him. I mean, it felt dramatically like the right instinct that Paul would die for this. That he believed this caused so much that he had a death wish. And here it is. You're dead. I wish they played up the death wish more. If this movie wasn't titled Death Wish, we wouldn't get that from watching it. At no point do I think he wants to die. I don't think he wants to kill either. I don't think he's sitting there like, I want to kill people. He wants to stop crime and seize killing as the way to do it. Hmm. Stuart, the book was called Death Wish, right? Did it address this? Did he have a death wish there? Or is it just a cool title because it's a vigilante story? It was never said explicitly. They don't have a, you know, a line that, you know, stands out and says, you have a death wish. It should be said that early drafts of Death Wish had that as one of the lines that you have a death wish that you keep going out there and it it ended up getting scrapped the producers even went so far as to say we don't like this title we want to call him sidewalk vigilante (laughs) (laughs) somehow i don't think that would have been as popular (laughs) yeah they were thinking that death wish sounded too much like a horror movie that it would be false marketing and you know it wasn't like people knew the book No, Sidewalk Vigilante, yeah. Big Bird walking down the street, uh, stabbing thugs. That's what I'm thinking of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I know. Anyway, they made the right choice. What was ends up getting said, Arnie, I think this is kind of interesting given what you just said, is that vigilantes don't want to see crime end. They want to see people bleed out and die. That what it's really about for them is watching the act of death. To inflict pain on those that have inflicted pain on others. And I think that that is what, at least in the book, we are to think of Paul. Is that he has gone so far that he just wants to hurt people. And that's why you don't want a vigilante. Because they're not about justice. They're about inflicting more pain. See, I wish I got that. I don't know what I'm seeing other than a guy trying to stop crime. I mean, he seems very interested, even though he's not an accountant, in the fact that crime statistics are going down. That he has all those newspapers tells me he's proud of his fighting crime, not he's proud that he killed people. And that's the difference between an A and a B movie, I think. And an A movie that was actually concerned about these themes would have tackled this, would have defined Paul's character more. Yeah, and would it have had Christopher Guest? This is a surprise. <laughs> so Bronson goes down, the guy gets away, and so there's this gun, you know, they the 32 that they've been looking for, and Christopher Guest, as Jackson Riley from the 21st District, has it to give it to the cops. And that's kind of how the book ends. The book's ending is not exactly the scenario, but the idea that the cops are going to look away. 
And that was the sentiment is that ultimately cops are okay if you're killing the right people was the message that the author wanted to leave it with. But here they go a step further and they actually have the cop bring the gun to Charles Bronson as he's getting a blood transfusion and living and says, let's make a deal. And this is where I thought, you know, when you said he couldn't stop where I think he is going to stop, he is moving away from New York. And I felt like his fight wasn't against any specific criminal, but against New York and against the seediness that had taken hold in New York, making me now honestly think of Bruce Willis's film will be set in Chicago because it seems like Chicago is the new New York with all the statistics. Mm -hmm. But the fact that he goes to Chicago tells me, all right, it's done. The gun I was given is when I went out and started this. The gun giveth, the gun taketh away. He never actively obtained a gun. And he never actively got rid of the gun. Those were both done by supporting characters around him. He goes to Chicago, but yet when he sees a woman getting harassed, he can't stop himself from getting involved, which again tells me it's not about the killing. It's about protecting those who can't protect themselves. See, I have a different reading. First of all, I love this ending. I love, yeah, he's helping that woman pick up her bags that these guys knocked down and were kicking around. When he turns to the screen and makes the finger gun towards him, I'm like, that is a great ending. I love it. <laughs> but to me, that tells me this is now a sickness for him. It's not personal anymore. It's just something that has taken over his psyche. And he's just, for whatever reason, may, if it helps him feel better about his wife and daughter, if it's just a sickness, he's going to keep killing yeah here's the thing if he had gone back to arizona i believe that he'd given up the gun he's going to live in the open space with the other cowboys and carry his pistol but he's not going to need to fire it the fact that he goes to chicago just means different city same business and that he can't wait to get settled into his new apartment and start wandering around millennial park it was surprising. When they said get out of town, I thought for sure he was going to Arizona. I mean, why wouldn't he? The fact that it's Chicago, Chicago had never been mentioned in this entire movie mm. that I caught. And so it seemed out of nowhere that he ended up in the Windy City. He left his daughter. She never got out of her catatonic state. <laughs> yeah, she's way out of it. Yeah, she, they put her in Long Island. It's over. But yeah, you know, Chicago, I think it has that mobster association. You think of gangs and mobsters and god knows the credits are a godfather font i don't know what that font's called but it's the font of the godfather so i think that's what the sequel promises it's going to be al capone versus paul kersey well before we get to the sequel let's see if we wish for one jacob stewart do you recommend death wish jacob I rarely wish for a sequel, but let me talk about this film. Because it, it's surprising in a lot of ways. The fact that those who perpetrated the crime at the beginning, who killed the wife and daughter, they are not killed. And again, I think if this was an A movie, that would have been addressed. That, oh, crime is so big, it's not about getting them, or it doesn't even matter to Paul anymore that if he gets them, it's he just wants to keep killing. This is a B movie, but... As a B-movie, the surprise is it's got some good ideas in there. It, maybe the dialogue's a little heavy-handed at times, but I like that they try to tackle some of these subjects and, and have this dialogue. And there are moments that I genuinely love in this film, like 
Paul getting sick after he shoots someone and the scene, yes, when he triumphantly waves those quarters and that sock around as he feels empowered. I do think this film tries to tackle some of those heavier ideas about vigilantism. It doesn't quite succeed. It ends up being firmly a Charles Bronson B movie, but that's fun. I, I'm willing to go with that. I enjoyed this film enough. It's fun being in New York City, having that sense of place. So yeah, this is a recommend. Stuart. Yeah, I'm going to echo those exact sentiments that it's not the sleazy B picture I thought it would be. It's a beep movie, but it's not sleazy. It's actually <laughs> trying to have an honest dialogue about vigilantism and trying to do more than... I mean, Charles Bronson gets those meta moments, like where he's looking at the Wild West and talking about being a conscientious objector. And while he might dramatically not be the best actor to tackle these scenes, I think it's important that an actor of his standing, who represents the kind of violence in movies that he's had for decades prior to the making of this movie, I think it's interesting that he's the one to do it in this first Death Wish movie. I imagine this movie is going to stand alone as the dramatic work, that when we get to these sequels, maybe the second one will have some of that, but I know by the time we get to the third one, it's all gone here. I'm going to appreciate what I was given. It's not a great movie, but I was surprised at how many things I responded to it, and while I know that this was a flashpoint when it came out, that people really had to debate it, I think it was a, a blockbuster because it got a lot of people talking about current times and how people should be living. I don't think it's going to have that impact on viewers now. I think there's been a lot of other vigilante movies that are going to feel a lot more current, but I think that you'll be surprised by it, and I think it's good enough to recommend. It's strange, but I think all three of us saw the exact same movie for a change, because I did expect this one to be more cerebral than the sequels. I expect the sequels to be far more Action Jackson than First Blood, and I got that here. What I was a little disappointed in and let down in was the capability of the lead actor to convey the emotions that the script and the movie had. And so I did find myself a little bit less engaged with the first half of the film, where I felt like that was the richest area for exploration, is the journey of the character before he picks up the gun. And yet, it was the least interesting part of the movie for me, because it didn't give me debate. It didn't give me a performance. It didn't show me reluctance. Yet, I like the more nuanced telling of what a vigilante in New York would look like instead of just being a glorified action film. Like Jacob pointed out, the shaking and the drinking afterwards. And the drinking actually came before. There's the line, I've never known you to drink without dinner. And he's like, well, I'm not having dinner. I'm just having the drink. The fact that there's some alcoholism and substance abuse that goes into this, down to just the little person newspaper salesman. I just, there's <laughs> details in this movie. <laughs> it's New York. It is. Like Stuart said earlier, I love people period New York. I love New York today. So to be able to open a time capsule and see it at a different time is a remarkably fun experience for me. It's one that we had a little bit when we reviewed the original Maniac film as well about another New York killer. I was thinking about that quite a bit during the subway scenes here that have a similar vibe. So yeah, this is a definite recommend. It's in some ways, it exceeded my expectations. In other ways, it didn't live up to them. But it was a good movie, and I'm glad to have finally seen it. Yeah, agreed. And listeners may wish that we were going to jump right into Death Wish 2. Going to have to wait a bit. Two weeks, we will get to the sequel. It took about 
a decade for Charles Bronson to come around. It's weird to think, but... He's already 52, 53. Yeah, but here's the thing. You know, they, it wasn't the idea in the 70s to immediately think, let's do a sequel. Even if it was a hit, that wasn't the mentality. It would become the mentality after Godfather 2 and Jaws. But yeah, they didn't immediately rush the sequel, and we're not either. Next Tuesday, I'm turning 44, so to celebrate a kind listener has advocated that we are to cover Bloody Birthday, a sort of follow-up to the happy birthday to me that we had for Arnie last Tuesday. Yes, if Death Wish wasn't as be a movie as you thought, Bloody Birthday will be. (laughs) All that and more. My real (laughs) present comes Sunday, I hope, when we cover on a live recording Kingsman 2. I'm really hoping that's as good as the first movie. I really did enjoy that, but... If not, then I guess I get to open this, and uh, hopefully you'll join us for that next week. Yes, you can join us this Sunday. I want to stress this hard. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Sunday, Sunday. Sunday. We did our Kingsman, the Secret Service Review, live back in February of 15. Here's the sequel. We're going to be doing it live again on Sunday night, 7 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. If you're international, there are calculators online. No mention for the mountain time, people, because whoever remembers that. Yes, it's going to be 7 p.m. at minus 5 GMT. So wherever you are in the world, I understand for our listeners across the pond, that's going to be pretty early in the morning for you (laughs) on a Monday. But we hope you're able to join us live Come to nowplayingpodcast.com and you'll find all the information right there on the page for the chat room and for the live broadcast. And if you can't, don't worry, you will get to hear the show. It might even be better. Honestly, usually our shows are with a little bit of editing. Arnie, you're going to be able to put it out later on the week so people will be able to get that main feed show. But it's fascinating to hear us clear our throats. <laughs> yeah, if you've ever wanted to know how many times I go to the bathroom, then here it comes. And on Friday, we have another podcast, our Silver Donation Series. Our Fall Donation Series is kicking off proper this Friday. You guys told us you want to hear us cover Phantasm. We're like, no, you guys don't. But we just kept hearing Phantasm, Phantasm, Phantasm. All right, you told us. We try to give you guys what you want. So this Friday, our Fall Silver Donation Phantasm, the retrospective begins. It's part of our fall donation series that is all horror all the time. Our silver level donation for $10 or more is the five Phantasm films. As soon as we get through Phantasm Ravager, our gold donation kicks in. Again, we've heard you guys say you wanted this a long time. We were waiting to end on a high note. We're not going to, so we're going to end in hell with Hellraiser. Yeah, there's nine films released. There may be a tenth by the time we get through it. And after we finish however many Hellraisers there are, nine or ten, we will be doing a platinum, as we like to do, three more films. So you can find all the details at Now Playing Podcast. Plus, again, you guys demanded it. We're releasing a 10th anniversary DVD-ROM set as part of this donation drive. We are? Yeah, this is news to you guys, too. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Yes, you haven't seen all the emails coming in from people who missed out on the 5th anniversary DVD and wanted a chance to get that or have the 5th anniversary DVD. They want a 10th anniversary DVD to put on their bookshelf next to it. So you can get all these shows and every podcast we've done 
from 2013 through 2017. That is five years. I know it sounds weird because, you know, math. But all the details are at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. Until next time, your death wish has been granted. I'll be back soon. It's not necessary. It is for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Death Wish Retrospective Series. If they hadn't have broken us up, I would have killed you. Next time, you won't even see me coming. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Are you getting the most out of life? Are you satisfied, fulfilled, happy? For more movie review podcasts, visit the nowplayingpodcast.com archives. <laughs> oh, what a bummer, man. That was the worst fucking movie I've ever seen. There you'll find hundreds of film reviews, including Die Hard, John Wick, the Jason Bourne series, Kingsman, Machete, the Marvel Comics movies, and more. And come back each week for another new movie review. Hope you guys have a good time tonight. Enjoy yourselves, huh? You know where to come back to if you want some more. Now Playing relies on listener support to keep operating. For our podcast's 10th anniversary, we have released over 150 donation podcasts through our Podbean page. I ain't known for my community spirit. Show me some money. Available there are series like The Matrix, The Quentin Tarantino Films, Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Aliens, and much more. Give me the money, homeboy. <laughs> Give me the money now. Collection time, Charlie. Collection time. Links to our Podbean page are available from nowplayingpodcast.com. I'm going to beg you, son of a bitch. Please. Please. You can also join our Podbean crowdfunding campaign to help our show grow. Backers of $10 or more will receive exclusive bonus podcast reviews, including Lego Batman, Get Out, Galaxy Quest, Hook, The Warriors, and Coherence. A link to our patron page is at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. My heart bleeds a little for the underprivileged, yeah. Stick them in concentration camps, that's what I say. We want to especially thank our Podbean donors of $50 or more, Joseph Black, Jacob Parkins, Anders Marath, and David Billington. Well, that makes you a preferred customer. Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. You're a writer. Write about it. Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums where you and other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie review. The links to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com. Might amuse you, though. Being from New York, maybe you've never seen a club like this. You can also follow Now Playing on Google+, Facebook, and Twitter. There, the hosts post new episode announcements, movie reviews, and contests where you can win movies and soundtracks. Can we just all please... Be civilized for once before I kill somebody. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found 
at nowplayingpodcast.com. I'm so glad you wanted to come along. The more people that understand our work, the better. Now Playing's Death Wish series is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You're tough. Yeah, you really are. Just a matter of keeping busy, Sam. Now Playing's Death Wish series is edited by Heath and Arnie. The guard said you were here after midnight last night. Yeah, that's the way I work. Now Playing's Death Wish series credits announced by Brock. I underestimated O'Shea. It's not going to happen again. The Death Wish films, all audio clips and music used are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created or produced the well-known Death Wish films or novels. Now Playing is an independent movie review podcast with no affiliation with any company involved in the publishing, creating, or distribution of that film or book series. You're not thinking of going back to your old ways, are you? Is that such a bad idea? Let the cops take these guys down. You know, sometimes the law works. And sometimes it doesn't. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Some people would say that was an extreme position. I don't care. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2017. All rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Whatever you little fucks think is important, ain't important. So stop! Stop it right now! Goodbye. This is Arnie. Your co-host of Now Playing, who has a death wish. <laughs> Stuart. In L- and I'm not in L.A. What am I saying? <laughs> <laughs> so Paul confronts and kills the three. Frank's actions start to cause other people in New York City to violently defend themselves when being robbed. You mean Paul's actions? Yes. Who's Frank? I don't know. The cop. Okay, Frank is the cop. I'm, I honestly thought I went into Frank Castle, the Punisher. No. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, this is something that Illinois recently faced because Chicago has these strict Chicago has these strictest I'm not strictest. <laughs> Chicago has these strictest I know the voice of this police chief. He is also the police chief in Beverly Hills Cop. Is this the man who wrecked the buffet at the Hero Club this morning? <laughs> Okay, I I know we're doing that series one day. I do very distant memories. Whenever they reboot it with Bruce Willis. Yeah, they wanted to do a TV series. Eddie was going to come back. They cannot make that thing work. London Hills Cop was threatened for how many decades? We want to call him Sidewalk Vigilante. <laughs> Somehow I don't think that would have been as popular. Oh, I just did a dry spit take because I was drinking nothing. <laughs> Hehehehe. <laughs>